Today, our country faces serious challenges, challenges that require clear, informed thinking, thinking that's outside the box. Your host, Jeff Nyquist. To the ones that wear the uniforms, to the ones that lost their lives, to a nation that's been torn, God hears your painful cries. I will stand with you, my friend, for justice will amend America. Welcome to another edition of Outside the Box with Jeff Nyquist, and today my special guest is Michael Pansner, the author of Financial Armageddon. He's come out with a new book, When Giants Fall, An Economic Roadmap for the End of the American Era. Michael J. Pansner is a 25-year veteran of the global stock, bond, and currency markets. During his career, he has worked in New York and London for leading companies such as HSBC, Soros Fund, ABN, AMRO, Dresdner Bank, and J.P. Morgan Chase. He is an FT Knowledge New York Institute of Finance faculty member specializing in equities, trading, global capital markets, and technical analysis. He also has a website, and I'll mention this again later in the program, called economicroadmap.com. Welcome to the show, Michael. Thanks for having me, Jeff. You know, uh, one of the passages in your new book, When Giants Fall, caught my attention, and it was the following, and I, I think it's not a bad place to start out. In your uh, chapter titled Small Fortunes, uh, you write, Economic woes in deteriorating public finances will also provoke all sorts of ill-considered and ill-conceived efforts to turn back the tide. And um, I'm thinking now that we're in this stimulus package with the new president, we're in this financial crisis right now in the United States, I couldn't help thinking of asking you about what you think of the stimulus package and the reaction of the government so far to what's happening. Well, uh, there's a couple of things here. First of all, it's, it's clear in some respects that the whole stimulus package is not really uh, being put together from the point of view of what uh, taxpayers' needs are, but seems more tuned in to the needs of uh, perhaps the, the Washington Wall Street nexus, if you want to sort of put it in terms like that. Um, I, I think it's a sign of trouble, frankly. I mean, clearly there's, a, there's problems, and clearly the, there are people who think government can solve those problems, of which I disagree with the latter, frankly. But um, the the truth is is that the remedy they've chosen is not the one that has worked before and seems most akin to the kinds of whether you want to call it corruption or whether you want to just call it uh, incompetence of a uh, of a flailing um, empires. And in a sense, I think it's well within the context of what I wrote about in my book. You know, I've heard on National Public Radio and, and other television programs, people have been whipping out their John Maynard Keynes. And they've been saying, hey, this stimulus package, this Obama, he's smart, he understands. It's all about John Maynard Keynes, that what we have to do is we have to spend a lot of money, spend our way out of this financial crisis. But this is just going to accelerate financial Armageddon, isn't it? In my view, yeah, clearly there are, there is a school of thought, and, and in a way, the proof will be in the pudding. Um, unfortunately, I think if the uh, uh, Keynesians are incorrect, um, they've essentially sent the the economy off the edge of the cliff by such an approach. 
I mean, the, the truth is, is that the reason we're in the predicament that we are in is because we've had this tremendous um, a bubble, credit bubble built up, tremendous amount of debt, um, all of that debt, you know, sort of compounding interest by the day. And in essence, you have this whole edifice of uh, assets that that essentially were propped up as a result of it. And until things get back to normal, until asset prices return to levels that have some semblance of reality, they match incomes, uh, or they match in the case, for example, of real estate, they they are appropriate to rent levels. And until the, the debt taken on during the go-go times really gets wound down back to a sort of sustainable level, and I'm talking about a dramatic fall-off, they can throw, in essence, throw a lot of money at this problem, and it's not going to solve it. Ultimately, what it will do is is debase the currency and create a, a sort of fall out of its own, and that's one of the, the things I expect to happen. Yeah, you wrote in the book that once things get bad enough, once they've basically failed at doing these different schemes, uh, they will turn to other, more destructive approaches. And you write, these might include cranking up the government printing presses, thereby triggering a hyperinflationary spiral, mandating forced conversions of savings and investment into government bonds and nationalizing or expropriating businesses. Yeah, these are, but, you know, I mean, there is a history here. I mean, we've seen this happen in other countries. You know, in South America is a, certainly a, a long-running model uh, or example of how things can go. Um, but governments are very um, self-interested. Once they reach a certain point, they and they go past the point of uh, prudence, as you, as you just referred to, um, Really, there are limitless options at their disposal, but none of them are to the benefit ultimately of the country or of the people who live there. I mean, they they may do some measure of good in terms of keeping those in power in power, but in reality, they don't solve anything. And when I talk about, you know, many people right now are talking about the government efforts being, if you like, printing press-like. Mm-hmm. I don't think we've actually hit that level yet. I don't think we've walked into the point where we had in uh, Zimbabwe where literally um, trillions of pieces of paper have been created uh, to essentially add it to the supply of money floating in circulation. I think we haven't gotten to the point here where you wake up one day and your bank account or the bank accounts of many taxpayers or non-taxpayers for that matter – you wake up one day and yesterday you had a dollar in the bank and today you have $10,000 in the bank and so does everybody around you. And where did it come from? Well, government, instead of throwing the money out of helicopters or printing it on the uh, printing presses, used the uh, wonders of digital age technology and then suddenly made everybody, quote, richer. But that's the kind of thing that will lead to a, a complete destruction of the currency and ultimately uh, turn the country into a basket case. And, of course, your title of your book, When Giants Fall, is really referring to the United States, isn't it? Correct, yes. And, you know, what really fascinates me is the kind of blindness that I perceived since I was in graduate school 20 years ago when I would talk about certain really serious issues like nuclear weapons and their use in actual warfare or... um, the nature, human uh, humanity's nature, tendency to get involved in all kinds of debacles and catastrophes. Um, and that whenever this is brought up, oh, you're a pessimist. Oh, we can't think that way. Oh, that's old hat. Nobody believes that. And, you know, the psychology of denial, and I, I believe it also goes together with the affluence that produces a psychology of entitlement. We actually believe that we're going to live this good life 
that we're entitled to it. And like in 9-11, we were shocked. We were positively shocked that anyone would attack us. And and I think that a lot of people are in shock. They still don't believe that we're headed for financial Armageddon. When you look at what the government's doing and you look at what's happened and how we're no better off than we were in September when this thing exploded over our heads, it's really happening. Well, it is. And, and, and you know, in some respects, what I can't understand here is two years ago, the, the optimists certainly had an argument that said, you know what, um, you keep predicting this, but it's not happening. And in fact, I wasn't one of the perma bears, but just talking sort of, uh, you know, more general terms. But since then, we've had this tremendous amount of wealth destruction. We've had um, the financial system in the U.S., which arguably was um, the the most sophisticated and one of the uh, most powerful and, and most emblematic of the strength of the U.S. in, in, in the world, um, essentially falling apart. We've had it's issues of countries like the uh, Iceland, for example, which went from um, thriving metropolis, I guess, um, to uh, sort of a third world country in a matter of months. We're talking about people in the United Kingdom are having experiences, some arguing that could be the next Iceland. You have a tremendous number of developments taking place right now that have no uh, linkage to a worldview that says everything is going to be all right uh, if we just give it time. Mm -hmm. These are extraordinary events. And and if you look back in history, these kinds of extraordinary events, um, more often than not, presage even more extraordinary events. And and that's the thing, I think, that that both uh, worries me and and frightens me. Well, in the predictions you made in Financial Armageddon, and I've had you on the show many times, these predictions have just basically come true, just as your book outlined the development of the crisis. I mean, you outlined in detail how things would happen, and they happened, they have happened in that way. And it seems to me, when I read your book, it was the most straightforward common sense with all the information at your fingertips, everything you know, having been in finance. And now with your new book, When Giants Fall... And I, this is my area, is, is what the consequences of different social and historical things are. It's, again, straightforward common sense. We know from the French Revolution, from the, the revolution that proceeded from the indebtedness of Weimar Germany, the Nazi Revolution. We know what happened when the Russian economy collapsed during World War I, and you had the Bolshevik Revolution, actually two revolutions in one year, um, the February and the October Revolutions. So we know that revolutions happen, that violence occurs, that people get desperate, and fanatical movements arise. I, I'm remembering from Eric Hoffer's The True Believer a quote about the inordinately selfish, and I think about our own narcissistic system, and that inordinately selfish people, because their pain and their denial of their desires is more poignant to them, are more likely to turn to a fanatical movement than others. And that really alarms me when I think about what Hoffer said in our country. And in your book, you're actually pointing out we are headed in this direction, we don't have a clue, and that our constitutional system, the unity of our country, and our attitude toward each other is on the point of changing when all this shakes down. Well, it is extraordinary. And look, as someone who's sort of uh, spent a half century growing up here and and thinking about a world and being told about a nation uh, that was, you know, sort of 
uh, top dog, uh, was the sort of envy of the rest of the world, was the place where streets were paved were gold, was the place where I enjoyed living as a child, was the kind of standard that you could hold up to other people when you visited, you know, abroad or whatever, and, uh, and not feel the least bit self-conscious. I mean, it's extraordinary to even think about these things, but I think like you noted, if you, if you just look back and see the process, how things have evolved in the past, this this sort of linkage between the sort of economic and social, this issue of people feeling entitled and then suddenly you take away from them what they thought they were entitled to and you stir up all sorts of emotions. And it's not necessarily new. Um, it's new from the perspective of people who live in the United States and Americans who have this distorted sense of, of, of where we are right now. But um, it's it's not new. It's, it's, it's a history repeating itself. And unfortunately... There's been so many elements, for example, you know, all the efforts by uh, Washington and the Federal Reserve and, and really this, the, the sort of elite of the country to give this impression that you could keep the sort of ball rolling forever without anything happening. Um, all of that just made it, made it that much worse with the downturn that's come about. Yeah, keep the ball rolling forever without anything happening. It, it reminds me of something I recently read. Alfredo Pareto's uh, Mind and Society. It was a section of his work uh, discussing global economic growth. And in order to show how ridiculous our expectations today are and how unusual the last three, four centuries have been, he wrote as follows, A centime placed on compound interest at the rate of 4% at the time of the birth of Christ would yield by the year 1900 a fabulous amount in francs. The exact number would be 23,085 followed by 26 zeros. Now, I would note that in Pareto's day, planet Earth would have to be made of solid gold in order to make up 3% of this sum. <laughs> I mean, it's extraordinary. And, and you know, in a way, it, it helps explain one thing that, in a sense, maybe it's a self-limiting process. You get to this point where where people project on an unsustainable basis and you get episodes i think barton biggs called them episodes of wealth destruction but yeah i think more broadly than wealth just episodes of destruction in a sense bringing things back to a uh to a more sustainable level and, and in essence i think that is perhaps the the uh, nature's way uh of returning to normalcy uh when humans don't want to really see it yeah in fact pareto went on to say exactly what you just said is that that there inevitably must be periods of massive wealth destruction, that uh, we literally don't do 10 or 20 or 19, I should say, continuous uh, centuries of uninterrupted economic growth. It's ridiculous to think that we could enjoy something like that. And so there's an upward limit. There are human limits. I mean, we know that every airplane has a ceiling. It can only climb so high, and the air's too thin. It can't go any higher. And so... um you know, the question for you with all the thought you put into this is, is this a ceiling? Is, have we kind of, has global civilization under the American, uh, sort of, uh, world order reached its apex? Have we hit the ceiling? Well, you know, the, the, the thing is that, and I freely admit this, that certainly I've, I've been lucky so far about anticipating the way things can play out. And certainly anything could happen. We could have a revolutionary, uh, understanding. We could be invaded by people from another universe who have a, 
you know, a, a wealth of knowledge that could sort of improve our chances. I mean, there's any number of things realistically or even uh, imaginarily that could happen. But um, frankly, you just have to look at nature and you have to look at natural at, at cycles like the seasons, for example, or the birth-death cycle or other aspects of life, uh, self-limiting environments where, you know, populations reach a certain size and, and nature has a way of correcting those excesses. All of it points to me that at least on an interim basis, we're at that corrective point. We're at that that, that winter um, that people have been sort of trying to put off or, or, or believe they could have could have put off or forever. We're at the point where we're in, entering winter, and it, and it's going to be cold and harsh. You know, it's interesting. The ancients had the same view. They they didn't have the idea that, of progress that we have, that the, the, that this great civilization awaits us in the future. They actually believed that the great civilization had existed in the past, that, uh, that man had had this, uh, this golden age and, and now he was just sort of eking out his existence after the collapse of the golden age. Uh, we seem to have created a golden age, but we still think there's more to come. Well, you know, it obviously depends on your perspective to a certain extent. There are people who argued, for example, that the end of the world was nigh when we had the Civil War. I'm talking from an American-centric point of view. Or they made similar arguments during the Great Depression that, um, you know, at the sort of depth um, of the of the whole process, there's just some sense that, are we ever going to get out of this? But if you put that in the context of, of many centuries, um, perhaps yes. So maybe the, the the progress view is not all wrong. Um, I, what frightens me a little bit is, that, in fact, that this is a uh, that this is a ceiling from the from the the broader perspective. That I don't know, and and I don't even know if I'll be around to witness it. But certainly that that's something to think about. But you know, I, it really does depend on time frame. And, and and the reality is is that if this lasts, this period lasts five or ten years, and then things sort of rebuild anew, um, then I suppose you could make the case that the, those who bet on, uh, you know, bet on the optimistic outlook are, are right. But I, I tell you, I don't know if that's such a uh, a wise idea because you still have to get through the next 10 years. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about something that's that's obvious and that is, you know, discussed in your book. You write, as the existing framework, economic framework, breaks down and the threat of U.S. intrusiveness recedes, Nationalist sentiments and a mood of rebelliousness will spring up everywhere, seemingly out of thin air. The idea-spreading contagiousness of the Internet and the emergence in recent years of state-supported news services and other alternatives to Western media sources will compound revolutionary stirrings. And you also argue in the book that the U.S. has kind of upheld this order. We've had this unprecedented era of peace that is mainly due to America and its and its predominance. And as that predominance ends, the whole structure, the international structure and the structure of the countries within it is going to change that the balance of power is going to be destabilized and that this is the period when revolutions and wars are likely to break out. A kind of almost global madness is coming, so to speak. I mean, would that be an accurate characterization? Yes, exactly. And, and you know, one uh, one little analogy uh, or, and in fact, not quite the best analogy, but certainly a a kind of a uh, an example that that tells you what I'm thinking about is is the whole idea of what happened with the Soviet Union. I mean, one day the people believed in the center, and and all of these disparate parts were 
relatively stable. You know, clearly this is talking in relative terms. Um, and then the next day they lost faith in the center, and uh, it's it's sort of chaos. Um, the you know the entire um, Soviet sphere of influence is in a state of unbalance and uncertainty, and people are scrambling. And it's you know you're talking about really a changing perspective as opposed to you know a sort of bomb landing somewhere and and killing the people who are in charge. Mm -hmm. A changing perspective. Uh, with me on the program is Michael J. Panzner. He is author of Wind Giants Fall, an economic roadmap for the end of the American era. And we'll be back. I'm Jeff Nyquist. We'll be back after these messages. You're listening to Outside the Box with Jeff Nyquist. WIBG 1020, live, local radio for Atlantic City, Cape May, and all of South Jersey. All right, they oh, one side kick, they bloop it, but the Vikings right there to field it. I think it takes guts to come out like you are doing right now. And if all of us were listening to this station more, I'm just so keyed up about it. We talked about it by the hour. We are going to pursue this until we're satisfied. WIBG 1020, on your radio, online, or on your cellular. WIBG 1020, we're everywhere. Listening to Outside the Box with Jeff Nyquist. All right, I'm back. This is Outside the Box, and with me is Michael Panzner, author of a new book just come out, When Giants Fall, an economic roadmap for the end of the American era. And we've been discussing the international uh, ramifications of the, the giant, the United States, falling or uh, losing its power among the nations. I'm going to... Uh, to quote something or mention something from your chapter, uh, A Future of Violence. You mention in your book that Russia and China are gaining on the United States and that the U.S. is losing its commanding position. And now, I recently talked to a U.S. nuclear expert. This was a couple of weeks ago, and he told me something that shocked me. He said that the U.S. nuclear arms manufacturing capacity today is smaller than that of Pakistan. And he told me that Russia and China are working on fourth-generation nuclear uh, warhead technology, which is something we know little about. And uh, th this would be, just to let the listeners know, this would be nuclear technology that doesn't employ a fission to trigger fusion and consequently allows for the uh, remarkable miniaturization of strategic nuclear warheads. And it, just, just to give you, that's just one area that concerns me, and um, how quickly do you see the United States being eclipsed? And and the other question would be, is, aren't Russia and China being hurt by this global financial catastrophe just as, as we are? Is, is, is there really a winner in this? Is there really a country that's going to come out on, on top? Well, you know, that's the argument um, that some of the, I guess, for lack of a better word, optimists claim that they see – I think Zachariah has written a book talking about the rise of the rest and making the case that it's not necessarily a, um, a malignant outcome, but in fact may just be a benign outcome. The rest of the world wants their a greater say. They want their share of the spoils, but it doesn't have to be confrontational. I disagree. I think there are issues that have been kept a lid on. I think there are a lot of animosity has built up towards the United States. And in terms of time frame, the thing that I found most extraordinary from when I published um, Financial Armageddon is that at first people would ask me, how long do I think it would take? And you know, clearly this was at the peak of euphoria. So anything that was a little too aggressive was 
probably not a good idea, you know, sort of um, in terms of uh, 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 being realistic. But it's what's astounded me is how extraordinarily fast things have unfolded here in terms of the U.S. and the world economy, how things have deteriorated with such rapidity that, uh, to be honest with you, I, I, I'm astounded myself. Um, I originally indicated sort of three to seven years for the whole thing to play out. I think I was being... Um, you know, sort of overly, um, overly perhaps optimistic. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's the issue that we're talking about here is how quickly could things crumble? Well, I think it, there could potentially be a catalyst that turns the picture uh, around within a matter of months. Um, even one day we're talking about uh, status quo, if, if today can be called that. And within a few months from now, we're talking about sort of uh, – conflicts brewing in uh, within the inner cities of the U.S. and, and b- across borders around Europe and around Asia uh, to the point where people don't recognize the world they live in. There was a former KGB officer that, that got into the American news several weeks ago. Uh, and, of course, he works for their diplomatic school in Moscow. And he had been working on a thesis for years and been talking about the future breakup of the United States. And in fact, and I saw in one news report an actual map that he was showing people that showed Alaska going back to Russia, the West Coast belonging to China, Mexico taking the Southwest back, and then the rest of the United States sort of broken up into kind of rump states. What's amazing to me is that they have been thinking this way, actually, not just this one KGB uh, professor. They've been thinking this way for a long time. In fact, a lot of people don't know that several years ago, the Russian Duma actually passed legislation for annexing and governing Alaska. Well, clearly, there's certainly an element of wishful thinking there. I don't want to necessarily make the argument that Russia has a better vision on the future than anybody else does. Uh, I certainly think that it's in their interest, perhaps, to see a broken-up U.S., and, and part part of this may just reflect a, a sense of what they would like to happen. Um, that said, um, clearly they're not um, being totally out of the question in the sense of how the U.S. Um, were to break up, and, and I do believe that down the road, the, the country that people know as the United States is going to be a whole different animal. But the idea that we could see breakups along geographical lines, um, especially in an environment where we have uh, people turning inward and people becoming isolationist and, and people becoming much more uh, localized in their perspective, is not so out of the question. I mean, I, I wonder whether uh, similar developments are going to take place in Russia, and I think you, you raised the point um, a short while ago, is with the whole world suffering at the moment, does that mean the U.S. can still lose out? Does that mean the rest of the world, um, Russia and China, which are suffering their own economic difficulties right now, does that mean, in a sense, maybe everybody's poor and maybe we maintain the status quo? I think the difference is that the U.S., is much more dependent on the rest of the world than it should be in terms of its status. Um, I believe that the focus in places like China and Russia, and I think you've pointed this out, is a a much more aggressive, a much longer-term strategy oriented on um, building up defensive capabilities and and building up their uh, influence and gaining the upper hand the first moment. You know, the reality is if the whole world suffers, in the U.S. you'll have people rioting in the streets wondering why the government's not taking care of them Elsewhere, I think you may see a reaction that people say they start a war 
to appease the people who are rioting in the streets. So I think that could be a difference. But I certainly don't see this uh, this economic calamity as breaking Russia or breaking China's resolve uh, to gain the upper hand at some point. Mm -hmm. And I would add to that, I, I happen to agree with that view. A lot of people don't really understand the differences between countries like Russia and China and the United States. I mean, real structural differences so that the kind of changes that you are talking about in your book have a much more profound impact on the United States and Russia. After all, Russia has already experienced economic collapse within the last decade. And they didn't have a revolution. They didn't, their society didn't break apart. Uh, the Chinese have experienced in my lifetime cannibalism. Literally poverty and starvation to such an extent that there was cannibalism in the 1960s in, in China. And I've talked to Chinese friends about this and it's absolutely true. It's, it's not just a rumor or a claim. These countries have been through and know, the people there know how to adapt. Americans have not been through this. The generation that lived through the Great Depression is, is, is passing right now. And, and we have developed a dependence, like you say, on foreign countries and a dependence on infrastructures that may not be supportable or sustainable with the economic changes that lie ahead. Um, one example is in Russia. This is a figure that's well known. Two-thirds of the population grow their own food. And, and of course, an enormous percentage of the Russian population, nearly a third, live on farms, uh, which is nothing like the United States. I think it's only 4% of Americans live on farms or are involved in agriculture. And, uh, and of course, that puts them closer to the soil, better able to, to survive and subsist. And, and it, it, it also gives them, uh, those skills, gardening and whatnot, that many Americans have lost. So just in that one, aspect and and the same thing goes for china that one aspect we are not as prepared socially politically in terms of of food and the adjustment of our lives so your argument that america is going to going to suffer proportionally more so that we lose our place our standing in the world i think it's it's spot on and a lot of people don't see that well they don't and i think the the problem is they're looking at it in absolute terms they're saying that you know if the loses the us loses half of its per capita uh, wealth uh and Russia loses half that you know we've essentially got still have more than them but I don't think they put it in a context like you just did in terms of the we, when you get down to that level you're talking sort of basic survival skills you're talking about basic uh societal interaction you're talking about what people would need to know that they've never been familiar with before all of those things become more pressing uh when your income falls off a cliff and yet in places that are already in bad shape, I think they're they're sort of always there. They're an innate part of life. So uh, I, I think the argument people made in China is that with all the people who came to the cities and uh, and started working in factories, now that things have reversed, some of them will just go back home and work on the farm again. Clearly there's going to be mm -hmm. some fo huge social unrest and, and fallout as a result of the the sort of uh, unraveling of the uh, global economy in that country. But there's an element of truth there. Some of those people just go back to living the way they used to live and, and living off the land and living on the, on sort of scraps a day. Um, and they'll be able to cope much better than people here in the U.S. will with arguably substantially higher levels of income. Yes. And we have developed, and I, I look to Christopher Lash, who wrote The Culture of Narcissism, and, and I look to uh, Gene Twenge I had on the program here, who wrote Generation Me. 
there is a rise in selfishness and unwillingness to sacrifice on the part of Americans and that, that a country that is confronting the need to sacrifice and people don't have the attitudes required for the sacrifice is also a much more dramatic transition. And that what we are likely to give up, and I, I have thought this for a long time, we are likely to give up, and as we see with the new president, our weapons, our defense infrastructure, our military system, we're likely to defund it more readily than the Russians. The Russians will make sacrifices. In fact, in 1941... Before Germany attacked Russia, German economy was six times larger than the Russian economy. Yet, during the war, because the Russians were so focused on weapons, the Russians produced ten times as many tanks, ten times as much artillery, many times more aircraft than the Germans produced, because the German economy had this large part of it that was about meeting people's comfort needs. Whereas the Russians, they lived in total discomfort. There was nothing about working to make your life more comfortable. You're working so that Russian power or Soviet power can defeat the Nazis or defeat the enemy. And uh, we don't really have that kind of group persistence anymore. No, I think you've hit it on the head. I mean, the, the truth is that if things go wrong in China, the, the, the government there or, or in Russia, for that matter, the government there is going to say, we're sorry. Um, sorry you can't afford to eat, but um, we've got to focus on our national interest, and our national interest is having a, a strong defensive capability. I don't think that kind of message would work well in the United States until the point at which the U.S. has already effectively lost, if, if you want to put it in those terms. Yeah, and of course, you point out in the book all of these signals that, for example, Russia is putting its bombers back up in the air, is doing these fleet maneuvers, uh, they're building new missiles and, uh, you know, fielding new weapons. And you also have a quote uh, from an expert on China saying that the United States is headed for an intense confrontation with China. I mean, this is what I, I know a number of Sinologists who feel the same way, not all sure. of them by no means, but there's a number... And they have very interesting arguments that China and Russia, even though we're these great trading partners, are headed for the conflict. And you talk about the kind of conflict between China's trading policies, the way they trade, and the way our economy functions. And, of course, this uh, this nuclear option, which isn't really nuclear, it has to do with the Chinese you know, holding all kinds of our bonds and our debt. Uh, explain that, uh, how that would unfold. Well, uh, to, to put it in a context, I'm a big believer in this whole uh, economic idea of incentives. If people have an incentive to do something, all else being equal, they'll tend to do it. One of the reasons why the Chinese have been so supportive and why even in more recently, I think they acknowledge that they're going to keep holding uh, U.S. dollars, they're going to keep holding um, U.S. assets, is because there's a belief that it will benefit them, that, they'll, that there is an incentive for them in doing this. But I wonder, as the U.S. loses its place on the world stage and as the economy here continues to unravel, uh, which is what I expect, and this whole idea that the U.S. can no longer provide a, um, an export market for their sort of producer-oriented economy, export-oriented economy, can no longer do any of the things that were behind the reason why China has this relationship to begin with, what incentive is there for China to carry on doing what they've been doing? Why not use the nuclear option and, uh, or be more um, likely to use, quote, the nuclear option if circumstances arise or if the, the point of vulnerability exists in the United States? And I think that's the, the issue you were talking about. But this idea that 
although it would clearly be detrimental to Chinese interests for them to dump, for example, U.S. stocks and bonds, I mean predominantly bonds, because after the first sale, it would drive down the value of whatever they had left. So there would be a, a self-destructive element to this, but they may take the point of view that certain strategic interests matter more, and they'd rather just completely destabilize the U.S., and the, the sort of ripple effect that would have on the rest of the U.S. economy, you know, socially uh, as, as well as um, economically and militarily at the expense of, of taking the hit, you know, in the short run themselves. So the point is, is that there's a greater likelihood for China to enlist all sorts of interesting, if that's the right choice of words, alternatives to dealing with the United States, uh, exerting their interests globally um, once they don't have that incentive to carry on with the things the way they were. Hmm. This reminds me of, uh, I, I worked years ago with a Russian defector who was a Sinologist. And I once asked him, he, he talked about how the military thinking, how the anti-American thinking persisted in China and Russia, and they had this secret alliance around the time of his defection. And I said, well, what would it take for them to turn openly against the United States in a very hostile way? And he gave the following answer. He said, when the money and the wealth ceases to flow from America, when they can no longer get anything more out of you, that's when they will see no reason to continue the relationship, that that they'll just bear their fangs and show their enmity and their ancient hatred of the United States for being the number one power and thinking that, well, now maybe we can be the number one power because they don't think in terms of the economic comfort of their people as we do. Sure. No, I think that's the question I've been asking myself. And in fact, I've been sort of thinking about it in the point of view of uh, over here, we've seen nothing like we've seen in Europe so far, the unrest that's been brewing in places like Greece, for example, and Eastern Europe. And even um, over to the West in, in Britain, we've seen a number of sort of general strikes picking up. All sorts of instability have been taking place. And I've been wondering about when does that tipping point in the U.S. get hit that we see the instability here? I think we're very close. But I think when you're talking about geopolitical relations, similar kind of a thinking goes on. It's, it's You just can get a sort of a progression of events where people hold off, hold off, hold off. And then one day they just say, you know what, we don't have to buy the U.S. line anymore, and it's time to sort of, uh, you know, go out in the open uh, and and express our intentions and express our, our will more directly. Yeah, I don't think people realize how dangerous the shift that you're talking about is, uh, because the United States is a nuclear power, and that if that power is no longer there, what could be unleashed is... It's just unspeakable. You mentioned in your book the grotesque inhumanity and slaughter of the Second World War and, and, and how many wars and slaughterings there have been, how irrational people get, how mean they get when, when they're in a sort of uh, situation, desperate economic situation. Do you think that it's possible that when the United States falls apart that we will be taken advantage of in the sense that other countries will do things to us, unpleasant things to us, maybe uh, extract, you know, steal things from us or enslave us in some way? Well, I think the will will be there, whether they have the wherewithal. That remains somewhat of an open question. Uh, over time, I think it will become easier. And certainly one of the advantages to the United States, uh, natural advantages, um, has been the fact that it's a, a relatively uh, self-enclosed uh, society with sort of buffer 
states, you know, buffer countries on the on the north and south, and oceans on the left and right. But once you get to a scenario where potentially there's secessionist movements going on, where parts of the U.S. are breaking off, where there's encroachment by, say, um, I think you mentioned uh, encroachment in Alaska, for example, by the Russians, where all these different pieces are are no longer unified um, in the way that they were. And all of the sort of inherent advantages um, that existed in the United States, in theory, for the benefit of all, are now for the benefit of those who are in those areas. Then you could easily see um, people play on that vulnerability. Certainly, I think you know there's been sort of parallels, and you talk about the schoolyard bully who can maintain order and and keep keep the sort of unruly elements at bay. But at some point, you get one or more challenging that authority. And they realize that the bully is not so not such a tough guy after all, and then all of a sudden it becomes a complete anarchy situation and I think that's the kind of um scenario I could see unfolding and and in fact uh, you know that's where the the bully ends up getting killed, you know, just like in some of those sort of Hollywood movies uh, at some point he's a leader, and the next thing you know they're all over him and uh, trying to kill him dead and I think that is the kind of uh, scenario that, that that's frightening to me I think particularly during the past decade or so, we've had this administration, or at least the prior administration, rubbing it in others' faces the extent to which they could do what they wanted and the power they could wield over others. And I wonder, just like the schoolyard bully, that when that changes, whether all those who've been slighted and hurt say it's payback time. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is a disturbing thought. With me is Michael Pansner, author of When Giants Fall, An Economic Roadmap for the End of the American Era. I'm Jeff Nyquist. This is Outside the Box, and we'll be back after these messages. Don't go away. You're listening to Outside the Box with Jeff Nyquist. At 10.20 a.m. or WIBG.com, we're the area's first choice for Christian news talk and a whole lot more. WIBG 10.20, on your radio, online, or on your cellular. WIBG 10.20, we're everywhere. And we're back. I'm Jeff Nyquist. With me is my guest, Michael Pansner. He's the author of When Giants Fall. And we were talking about specifically the giant, the United States. And, Michael, you were just saying how uh, the United States, having pushed its weight around the world, especially this last decade, we've got a lot of people who don't like us. We've we've lost a lot of goodwill. There's, there's folks that already are envying us or being sore at our power that maybe they will get a chance to kick us when we're down, so to speak. Yes, exactly. And and I know it sounds uh, almost cartoonish, that description, but I, I think it's realistic in the sense if you look at history. People who have had to sort of kowtow, uh, and I've used that word in the book actually, kowtow to others for a long enough period of time, uh, brew some pretty potentially dangerous um, sentiments below the surface. And if those sentiments are released, especially in a circumstance where People are suffering economically, like we're seeing now, but uh, where they're suffering even in terms of their uh, other aspects of their lives socially. They're living in, in circumstances where they feel um, a lot of pain. 
then their idea is to lash out. And, and part of that lashing out is going to be against those they feel put them in that position to begin with. Is one of the big steps toward this falling of the giant, the removal of the U.S. dollar as the world reserve currency? I noticed that at Davos, Switzerland, premiers of Russia and China both attacked the dollar in a very curious way. And you'd mentioned before China's interest in the dollar, and yet the Chinese premier attacked the dollar at, at Davos. Um, do you think that the dollar's fall is inevitable at this point, or is there going to be a way to save it? Well, yes, I do. You really can come at it from many different angles. From an economic point of view, the U.S. is, is suffering from some fairly extensive and serious imbalances. But from a, a geopolitical perspective, one reason why the dollar has been a reserve currency so long is because people have had a respect for the country, uh, respect for the United States. They've viewed it as a safe haven. They've perceived the, the need to hold dollars for international trade purposes, for uh, engaging in different um, investment uh, activities. There's been a host of reasons why people should hold the dollar who aren't natural holders. But if that rationale disappears because the U.S. can enforce the sort of U.S. world-oriented economic order, and the U.S. can enforce safety and create a, a sense of orderliness in, in, in terms of the global trading environment. And if the U.S. can't order or can't use its nuclear weapons and other powers that have been at its disposal to keep the Gulf oil transport channels open, then people are going to say, wait a minute, why are we holding a currency of a country that doesn't help us? Why are we holding the currency of a country that is engaging in reckless economic policies? What is the point of us taking on that risk, that currency risk, without getting any of the benefits that we used to have? And, and I think that is the thing you have to bear in mind. It's not just an economic issue. Clearly, U.S. policies like we're seeing now of cranking out money and ultimately printing it in a sort of literal sense debase the currency. I mean, they create more supply and that reduces the value. But by the same token, we also have this sense that people believe in the U.S. and by association, they believe in the currency. Once they lose that belief in, in either, then they lose the, the belief in the sort of offsetting element as well. So I, I do see it going down and I do see it going down a lot. This is absolutely fascinating and it's 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 important now am i correct in, in saying that if the us dollar is no longer the reserve currency of the world the dollar even here may collapse well there's something to be said for that i mean there is a whole other question of if you look at it in purely domestic terms forgetting for a minute about the idea of uh, the us being a reserve currency but just looking at it from the point of view of being a medium of exchange if people lose faith in it here, if people believe that, you know, bad economic policies, um, inflationary printing press type policies are, are destroying the value of that currency, then, you know, people are going to look for alternatives, whether it's gold, which I have quite a bullish perspective on going out in the longer term, or whether it's having your own set of tools or whether it's owning certain kinds of uh, property. I, I'm not sure, but people are going to look for alternatives if the one they have is not working for them. And, of course, what you're saying is so logical. I mean, there's I cannot even think of an argument to say that, oh, no, we're going to glide through this. The dollar is going to be the reserve currency. The dollar is, therefore, never going to collapse, or it's not going to collapse in the near f future. 
uh, it just doesn't make sense to say that. And what you just said is so important that I wish I could drill it into President Obama's head that, that, hey, wait a minute, listen to this guy, Michael Panzner, listen to him. You have to be so conservative fiscally with this dollar because you don't want it to stop being the world's reserve currency. And you don't want to let the U.S. nuclear arsenal wither away because you need to retain that respect that, that comes from having that arsenal. Uh, am I mistaken? You're not mistaken, but the question is whether that's even changeable at this point. You know, I don't know if you're a fatalist, but, you know, there are some arguments that History is about cycles and empires come and go. And is the U.S. on a unchangeable path that has been sort of preordained by all of the events that got us here? I mean, it's my view that probably that's the case. I mean, I don't rule out the possibility that something dramatic happens and I end up being wrong. Mm -hmm. Um, But if you look at history, you can see this is an evolutionary process. You can see what got us to this point. You can see that the kinds of people that are in charge now, you can see this sort of endemic corruption that exists in Washington. You can see this growing divide between the rich and the poor. You can see society's sense of entitlement, this loss of of uh, a work ethic. All of these things have converged. So are they suddenly going to change or are they part of a convergence that leads the lemmings off the edge of the cliff? And, and unfortunately, I think that's the scenario. Yeah, it does seem to be the scenario. Uh, as much as I don't want to say it, it, it has been apparent. I read ancient history. I, I spent uh, several years of my life reading ancient Greek and Roman authors, and it gives you a kind of perspective. You see things in terms of many centuries, the kind of stupidity and the kind of blunders that happen in in human social life and when i look today at our leaders and you just mentioned corruption it seems to me that that corruption is the least of our problems it seems to me that there's a kind of pervasive stupidity and i think of the words of of victor suvorov who recently wrote a book exposing stalin's role in starting world war ii which is basically pretty obvious but that historians hadn't really hit on it and I, and I saw he was speaking at the Hudson Institute and I saw it and they, and they said to him well how come all these historians haven't noticed this and you did and he came back with the following comment he said are you asking me why they're all so brilliant <laughs> <laughs> and it seems that the same thing applies to you I mean it's like well why does Michael Pansner see it and and the real answer is as terrifying it is as it is. Are you asking me why they're all so brilliant? <laughs> well, look, you know, uh, there's a there's a lot of smart people around, and there are people who make the argument that you know historically at least it's made more sense to bet on the optimist. I mean, there's no doubt. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, even if you're as I am, a long time uh, market person, um, two and a half decades in, in financial markets. For the most part, markets go up. I mean, even uh, under the sort of dire circumstances that, you know, if you put it in a long enough context. So I don't want to say that these people are absolutely wrong, but mm-hmm. I think the problem sometimes is that people don't really look at it with enough context. They don't say, okay, you know, where are we in the sense of the past decade? Where are we in the sense of the past half century? Where are we in the, in the context of the past 500 years? And I think if you look at it in those terms, you can still be a sort of long-term optimist, but an extremely negative in the short term. And the short term in this particular case could be a decade. Right. Yes, exactly. No, it's it, you're right. I mean, we've had centuries of 
near continuous economic growth in uh, in the west in western civilization we've come to expect it and there is this idea that people have that what happened yesterday is going to happen tomorrow and we judge the future by the immediate past and the immediate past you can go back centuries now to see progress so people have become very persuaded by this thesis of progress but it is also true that if you look specifically at the problems that we have and you look at the stumbles world war 1 and world war 2 were pretty big stumbles sure. and you realize that civilization almost went off a cliff in the 1940s western civilization and if we triggered a nuclear war during the cold war we would have gone over a cliff in fact we have built something that is kind of over a ledge i mean it, it, we have built structures so high and so tall and so it's like a tower of babel how high can you build before the sheer weight of it collapses in on itself well that's right and i think in fact one of the uh, issues that i touch upon in in the book which we didn't get into too much today is that there is something that's different now and you know you could talk about this whole boom of the past few centuries and uh, part of it has related to to energy cheap energy cheap oil that's a factor that's not going to be there in future so you know you've built this giant tower as i think you've described it but part of what's helped you build that tower is this resource that doesn't seem like it's going to be as plentiful as it was before and how does that change the game mhm it does and and i i got to ask you in in the last minutes of the show we've seen oil energy prices come down with the uh, economic crisis we've seen a collapse of of oil prices are they going to come back up again what what is the long term prospect yes and in fact even in the book i say look there's a demand tempering effect from slower global growth no doubt i mean clearly that's taken the edge off oil but the irony is is that what should be done now with a long term perspective and nobody's thinking in long term these days is the oil companies should be investing and the government and people generally should be investing in finding new sources of supply finding alternatives spending money to address that point in time when it's not going to be available or not going to be available in any kind of way that people would like and i think the problem is now that this sort of short term phenomenon in a sense is this collapse that we've seen is going to make it certain that somewhere down the road we're not going to have enough supply and i think that's the issue you should bear in mind and ultimately that's going to push prices a lot higher than they are now yeah yeah well michael we only have a couple minutes in your concluding chapter you uh, you talked about you know well people criticize uh, pessimistic views of the future and uh, they don't really want to hear what might be a realistic assessment because it's too dark what do you say to these people <laughs> i say I'd rather not see the darkness myself. Um but look, I mean I've written this is my third book. My whole perspective is and perhaps that's maybe makes me different, not brilliant, but just different is that you just have to look at the facts and see where they lead you. The point I made as you're noting there in the end of the book is that I would much rather had someone telling me back in 1929 and 1928 that you better put your head down cuz things are going to get bad. uh or back during the time just before the civil war un- unleashed say you know you better get ready things are going to get bad I would much rather have had someone tell me that than to say oh it's going to be okay don't worry about it and then you get blindsided and that's my perspective is that okay maybe i'm wrong but any of the behavior that you would take to adapt to adjust to be prepared is that necessarily a bad thing no 
No, and, and in fact, if I were driving on a trip and someone told me the road was out ahead, it might be very bad news to know the road was washed out, but I could save myself a lot of trouble by going around the long way. You could even, if they said it might be washed out, and here's why, because we've had these rock falls in the past or whatever, somebody gives you some kind of a basis for it, even if you made the mistake of going around, I think it still was the more prudent course. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. And uh, you have a website, economicroadmap.com. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about it. Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a kind of a sister website. I still run financialarmageddon.com. The one focuses more on the U.S. side of things specifically. Economic Roadmap is really trying to put the sort of this book in the context with where the U.S. is and the bigger picture and where the rest of the world is because people are just not paying attention to what's going on. Yes, Michael Pansner, When Giants Fall, An Economic Roadmap for the End of the American Era. I think people should go out and buy this book. They should read it. They should be informed. Michael, I want to thank you for being with us on the program. Well, thanks. Thanks very much, Jeff. All right. Take care. Well, it's very interesting what we've heard tonight, and uh, I think Americans need to be realistic. They need to have their eyes wide open. They need to not assume that we're an invincible country, that we're uh, always going to be a united country, that there are things that can come and happen to us, and we need to be vigilant about it. We need to read books like Michael's book, and we need to appreciate what we have and strive to understand where the danger is coming from and how to meet it as families and individuals and as a country. So with that, I want to wish you all good luck, and God bless until the next program. Today, our country faces serious challenges, challenges that require clear, informed thinking, thinking that's outside the box. Your host, Jeff Nyquist. To the ones that wear the uniforms, to the ones that lost their lives, to a nation that's been torn, God hears your painful cries. I will stand with you, my friend. For justice will amend America. America. I'd like to remind the listeners to visit my website at jrnyquist.com, and there you'll find a link to access all my columns on Financial Sense, my past columns at WorldNet Daily and SierraTimes.com and other Internet publications. So I encourage all the readers to go there. There's lots of information on my website. It's a great resource, and um, and I hope you'll visit it. It's www.jrnyquist.com. That's J-R-N-Y-Q-U-I-S-T.com. And that's my website. Go check it out. There's lots of articles written by people from all over the world about the issues that are going to affect your life in the coming months and years. This has been a presentation of the Jeff Nyquist Out of the Box radio program. America. America.